Well, my opening question this morning is, are you good at communication? You know, that's a tricky task, communication. I don't mean public speaking. I mean communicating between people. And I was reading uh, an interesting thing by a guy named H. Norman Wright, who said, when we try to communicate, there are six distinct messages being given. There's what you mean to say. There's what you actually say. There's what the other person hears. There's what the other person thinks he hears. There's what the other person says about what you said, and then there's what you think the other person said about what you said. (laughs) Communication truly is a a daunting task, and miscommunication is so prevalent. I bring it up this morning because I want to talk today about trustworthiness, about communicating well, about building up healthy relationships, which is the series that we're in. And so far, I've said relationships are the most important thing in life. First with God, then with others. Love God, and then love others. And then last week, love as Jesus loved. And the way that we express our love for God and for others involves communication. It's, it's fundamental. It's foundational to love. In fact, if you've ever read that book, The Five Love Languages, which is a very popular book, all five of those languages require communication. I mean, that's why they're called languages of love. So, for instance, um, touch is a way to communicate uh, love to someone. But I could put my hand on someone's shoulder, and I could communicate, great job today. I'm really proud of you. That was awesome. Or, just with a different look, I could put my hand on their shoulder and express disappointment. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's so, communication is so important to expressing love. And if I choose not to say anything and just sit there silently, I can be communicating the wrong thing by holding back my heart from somebody and it actually inflicts damage on them. So communication is really important and it's the foundation of relationships. And even within communication, trust is foundational too. And we have a big credibility gap. There's a credibility gap in every person. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says of his own people. He says, they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression, and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Ouch. The prophet Jeremiah's words, or God's words, rather, through the prophet, are hard for us to hear. And lest you think that's only in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, hear what the New Testament says. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile, sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, 
These things ought not to be so. There's James. He doesn't hold any punches. He just comes right out and, and, and hits us. We have a credibility gap where we are constantly tempted to deceive and to lie and to speak in an untrustworthy manner. I came across a really funny thing that John Ortberg wrote. He's, John Ortberg is a really witty author, pastor, teacher. He was at Willow Creek for a number of years. He has, a, he has a book called When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. And in there, he gives advice to the situation that if you're a parent, you know it. If you were a teenager, you know it. It's when something comes out that may not have been true, and the teenager wants to really emphasize his trustworthiness. And he says, Dad, do you think I'd lie to you? Okay? And this is what John Ortberg says, you ought to reply. Do I think you'd lie? Of course I do. I lie. Your mom lies. That's for sure. Everybody I've... (laughs) Everybody I've ever known has lied. In fact, the most famous story about lying in American history is the story of George Washington cutting down a cherry tree. His father asked him who did it, and George is supposed to have said, I cannot tell a lie. It was me. That was in a biography written by Parson Weems in the 19th century, and he made the story up. The most famous story about not lying in America is a lie. (laughs) Anybody who says he or she never lies is lying. Mostly, son, I think you'd tell the truth, but absolutely, I think you could be lying. That's just the human heart issue. I mean, it's just being exposed that that's what we wrestle with, that credibility gap. And Daniel Webster, the senator, said, there's nothing as powerful as truth and often nothing as strange. It's just so rare. And right into the midst of that, Jesus speaks a word in his Sermon on the Mount. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Simply stated, is your word gold? Is it golden? Can what you say be trusted? Don't take oaths to somehow add emphasis. Just if your yes is always yes, then people know that. If it's no, then no is your answer. Don't waver and don't try to emphasize how trustworthy you are by taking oaths. Now, I want to say something about this passage sort of as a side note, but I think it's helpful. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he is contrasting things that were present in his day in particular, but are still present today, that were not in keeping with God's intention. So some people have read this passage where, where Jesus says, don't take an oath, and have taken it to an extreme level, where they refuse to swear on a Bible in a court of law, let's say, or they, re- they refuse to give any kind of an oath. That's not the point of the teaching. I've taken oaths. I made an oath to my wife. I made an oath to the Lord when I was ordained. Vows are important. The problem was that they were becoming so prevalent that they were for anything. And in his day, people thought that if you take an oath in the name of the Lord, you have to honor it. But if you take an oath in some other things, you may not. And it became sort of deceitful. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you swear by heaven, because that's where God's throne is. Or by the earth, that's his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, because that's the, the temple of the, the great king. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. God's not against taking an oath. In fact, in the, in the book of Hebrews, um, it says uh, some interesting things here. It says, and, uh, God, speaking to Abraham, um, for, he, he says, hold on, let me find it. For when God made a promise to Abraham... 
since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So here's the New Testament saying, even God gave an oath to Abraham to convince him that I'm going to do this. And God can't swear by anything higher than himself, so he swore by his own self that he would do this. So it's not, don't take any oaths. Jesus' concern is with trustworthiness, that we would mean what we say, and when we promise something, that we would fulfill it, that we would live into that. It's a tough thing for us to do, because deceit is everywhere, and people go to great lengths to appear truthful, more so than they go to great lengths to be truthful. And Jesus ends that teaching by saying anything more than simply saying your yes and your no is from evil. Jesus calls Satan in John 8 the father of lies. And the lie is primarily the denial that God is as he says he is and that he has evidenced himself to the world. So the apostle John can write this, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So the ultimate lie is the denial of God the denial of his goodness, the denial of who he is as a person. It's a rejection of God. Into the midst of that situation, Jesus comes and he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I am the truth, says Jesus. In fact, when he's being accused and he's being examined in in his passion, Pilate is asking him questions, and he says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. And then he says, what is truth? And walks out on Jesus. Pilate can't handle that, and so he walks out on it. Even back then, truth was relative. Of course, truth isn't actually relative. It's absolute, but today we talk in post-modernity about truth being relative. What's true for you might be different than what's true for me, and there is no absolute. But that's what Pilate was saying back there. (sighs) What is truth? There's no truth. What is truth? And Jesus is saying, I'm truth, and I've come to witness to the truth. That was his message. It was a powerful message in that day. I like how the Apostle Paul sums up the whole gospel message. He calls it in Ephesians 1.13, the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. The message that saves is called the word of truth. There is absolute truth, and it's Jesus, and it's his message. And he teaches that God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Such, such worshipers he is seeking. I find that most dishonesty comes from fear. It's not that we set out to deceive. It's not that we want to be liars. We really do want our word to be true and golden. But we have these fears that subvert our desire to speak truth. The fear might be of rejection, right? If I don't look good enough that you might reject me, so I deceive so that I come across as better than I actually am. And I certainly am not going to tell you about my fears or insecurities or shortcomings. And we flatter people, which is a form of deceit. We flatter them so they will like us because we're afraid of not being liked or being accepted. Or we have a fear of real closeness. If I'm just transparent and honest and simple in that regard, then people will be, I'll I'll be very exposed. I'll feel very close to them and I'm afraid of that. I'd like the safety of some distance, right? That vulnerability makes us unnerved. Or 
and this might be a legitimate fear, I'm afraid of being controlled by people. If I admit I have a weakness to somebody else, now they can use that against me, right? And so I'm not going to share any of that. I'd rather lie, flatter, give empty promises. I want to appear to be trustworthy more than I actually want to be trustworthy. I want to appear to be honest and open more than I really want to share. Now, here's where the cross helps us. It completely exposes our failures. The fact that our sin put the Son of God on that cross and caused him to die shows how bad our sin is, how, how much it goes down to the very root of who we are. It's not just a couple of surface mistakes. Because the solution was so severe, the problem must be that severe as well. And it forces us to look inside and say, what caused Christ to go to that cross? What is so bad? Because that's the solution, I, I start to realize maybe the, maybe the problem is worse than I thought. I really am more fundamentally flawed than I realized. And then we hear those words of affirmation. You are forgiven. I love you. My mercy is new for you today. And when I realize that God can accept me, even though he sees me completely, that I know that he loves me, even though he knows my thoughts before I say them. He understands my motives, even though I don't. When I start to understand that level of acceptance, now in community and in relationships, I don't have to lie anymore. I don't have to flatter people so they'll like me because God loves me. And if they happen to like me, that's icing on the cake. But I can just be myself and not have to try to deceive others. It's a powerful thing, and it sets us free, to be honest. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And His love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So those fears that I have in relationships can be taken away because God takes them away. And He does it through the cross. It's interesting that doing business with God helps us in every other aspect of our lives. I asked the staff at Dan's suggestion to do a prayer day last week, and Tuesday we gathered at my house, and we did not do our usual office admin type stuff. Instead, we spent time with the Lord, and we had solitude time where we weren't talking. We went into different places and spent some time with the Lord, and I had them read a section from a Henry Nouwen book called The Way of the Heart, and Henry Nouwen is a pretty profound writer and author, and, and he is very deep in the the spiritual disciplines. And this book looks at the concept of solitude. And there was something in it that I wouldn't have immediately picked up. And he said that solitude, being alone with God, solitude actually increases our compassion for other people. And you wouldn't think getting away from other people will increase your compassion for them, but it does. Because what happens is in solitude, you get alone before God, open, exposed, vulnerable, vulnerable before him just like we prayed. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. All desires known and from you no secrets are hidden. There's nothing hidden from God. And when it's just me and God and I don't have things to distract and noises and books and music and all sorts of things and people, I have to deal with the fact that I'm sitting in the presence of a holy God and he loves me, but he's holy and I realize I'm not. And what it does is it humbles. And in the same way that it then gives me compassion for other people in their shortcomings, it also gives me a, a willingness to communicate with honesty with them. I don't have to have fear that, of what they will think of me because I know what God thinks of me because of the cross, because of his love. That kind of refreshing honesty is transformational in communities. When people actually say things that are just 
where they are, it is actually disarming. Unless you're somehow trying to compete against them, when someone says, you know, I'm just not sure I'm smart enough for this job, and, and you're a coworker of them, now, if you're trying to take their job, you, f- you see that as an opportunity to attack them and appear smarter than you are so you can get their job. But if you're not and you're in community, all of a sudden it endears them to you because you realize, well, sometimes I don't feel smart enough for my job either, or I don't have enough energy for it, or I'm not gifted enough for this, or there's always somebody that's better, smarter, faster, and that can make me feel weak and vulnerable. And so when people start doing that refreshing honesty thing, it is incredible what it does to community. Now, I'm speaking to us about healthy relationships, and I'm thinking most importantly about the health of a church and within the Christian community where we all know that fundamental problem that we have, and we all hopefully know God's deep love for us in the cross, it has a different kind of interaction completely where compassion is everywhere, where love for one another and understanding are both abundant in the community. Refreshing honesty. It, it is really a different way of living. I wish I could find the video, but I can't. Somewhere on YouTube, I'm sure that commercial's out there, but a number of years ago, there was a commercial that used that refrain, refreshing honesty. And I think it might be for Sprite, but I can't remember. I guess the marketers failed, right? I remember the commercial, but not what they're selling. But the point in the, the, the thing about refreshing honesty was, it was this little skit, a little scenario of a, of a housewife in her kitchen in suburbia, and these plumbers that were big and smelly and dirty looking, and they're standing in her kitchen, and they are just saying exactly how this is going to go down. Listen, lady, you're desperate because your plumbing's not working, your kitchen's all stopped up, and you need us. So you're going to sign the contract, and we're going to work really hard for two days, and then we're going to disappear mysteriously for three weeks. And then we're going to come back because all our tools are still in your kitchen, and we're going to finish the job, and we're going to have a problem, and it's going to cost you a little extra, but you'll see how hard we work for that problem. And by the time it's done, you're going to kiss me full on the lips. <laughs> Do you remember that commercial? Uh, all right, well, it was a while ago then. And then, it, and, then it just said, and then it just said, refreshing honesty, right? Sometimes we don't want that kind of level of honesty, but realistically, that would be helpful to that person, Right? I just want you to know that my work, lady, is going to cause me to have to prioritize another job right in the middle of yours. I want to do well by you. It's just the whole thing's going to take a month. So just plan for that, right? That kind of honesty would really serve her, and then she would understand what's happening. And, but we don't see that much in life. It's way more about deceit, about half-truths and shades of truth and spinning things in gray area. And I don't think it needs to be. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't take oaths. Don't try to appear more trustworthy than you are. Try to be more trustworthy than you are. And in his Sermon on the Mount, he raises the bar so high that it's going to require the power of God. And what I'm saying is the cross gives us that power. He makes what is impossible possible for us by saying, I love you, even though you're flawed, and I will help you. So now what I want you to do with this is I want you to pursue honesty in your relationships, starting with the closest ones first. How many lies does it take to erode trust? Just one. Just one. You can deal with a lot of problems in a relationship, but if dishonesty is there, it really kills the relationship. It kills communication and it breaks things down. But you can gradually restore that. I don't know how many truths it takes to make up for that one lie, but over a period of time, consistently being honest 
and letting your yes be yes and your no be no will build back trust. I liken it to a bank account. You can make withdrawals and deposits in a bank account. A lie or a deception is a big withdrawal, but steady over time, consistently being honest, will put deposits in there. It will strengthen that relationship. And I want you to be honest before God to start that. So there might be some things in your life that you need to bring before him that you're trying to hide from him and you can't. And you need to let him affirm you that he loves you even though you're flawed. He loves you that much. And what will happen is it will help you be honest in all your other conversations because frankly, if I'm lying to you, I'm also lying in the presence of God. If I'm trying to deceive you, I'm trying to pull something over on him and I can't because he already knows it all. So if my primary concern is integrity with my God, then that can flow right out into my relationships. I should care more about being a man of honor and honoring my word than I should about anything else in that relationship. So I think that passage from Ephesians that we read is so helpful. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into the church, who makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. Healthy relationships require communication. Trust is the bedrock of good communication, and that means being truthful in that.